And now, coming to you live from the International Conference on the Fantastic and the Arts, being held at the Orlando Airport Marriott Hotel in Florida, USA, it's Jonathan Strahan, not actually in Florida, Gary K. Wolf, and very spe- special guest, Joe and Gay Holderman on the Coot Street Podcast. Okay, and, and we're back. <laughs> and we're back. From high atop the third floor. Ah. Um. <laughs> oh. Once a year, we've done podcasts from here, and this is the first time we've had you on. Well, good. So, yeah. But but the point that uh, we wanted to do this this week is that this brilliantly edited collection of stories <laughs> called "The Best of Joe Haldeman" uh, is just about to be out. And it occurred to me the problem with any anthology called "The Best of" is that if your best writing is in novels, we're lying. <laughs> Well, a lot of my novels appeared first as uh, fragments, no, novelettes, novellas. Well, I think we've got, hero, we've got hero Heroes in this uh, collection. Yeah. So, yeah. so people want to see the original iteration of the Forever War. Uh, there it is. There it is. Yeah. And and it does include sort of a couple a couple of your five Hugo Award winners and a couple of your five Nebula winners. So it's not exactly sort of chopped liver. This is this. Hmm. Do you feel no, I think it's more like baloney? <laughs> Before we we sat down, I, I reread the introduction you wrote for the book, Joe, and it made me think. Do you find coming to short stories has been a very different thing for you than uh, go, coming to novels? Oh yeah, definitely. And when I was uh, first writing, of course, I didn't have a market for novels, and short stories were basically what I did. I guess for a few years, and then I, <clears throat> I mean, in, in science fiction, outside of science fiction, I started with a novel. Yeah. Uh, with War Year. W- yeah, with War Year. But the uh, short stories, it always strikes me, and I don't, I, I think you may have been coming in at the tail end of, of writing stories under enormous pressure to fill a cover obligation oh, yeah. like Bob Silver. <laughs> but except for people like that, a short story comes without a deadline. Right. Which means you get it the way you want it before you even send it in, and and you're not there's not somebody breathing down your neck for it. That's right. It's a much different game now. I just think it'd be a lot more fun writing short stories that way. <laughs> it's fun to write them under deadline, actually. Hmm. I I rather enjoy it, <clears throat> but there's there's almost no financial pressure to a, a novelist <laughs> who every now and then writes a short story for a couple of bucks. Right. If if I have a if somebody gives me a wonderful idea and a good frame for that idea, I don't mind the deadline. In fact, if he doesn't have a deadline, I'll say, "Oh, I'll get to that once I have." So you set your own deadline. Yeah, right. Yeah. I have got a question for Gay. Okay. Do you remember the first story of Joe's you ever read? Oh yeah. Oh really? He read it in college. Oh. And uh, it was. I think it was out of phase. The uh, one that the, his first story yeah. that appeared in Galaxy. He wrote three stories for a class because uh, he had a deadline and they had a writing class. Uh-huh. And uh, he read them to me. And uh, I wa- we walked around the, along the railroad track every day because he wouldn't write them till the night before they were due. And so we'd walk the railroad track and he would tell me the story. And then he'd go back and write it all night and turn it in and get an A on it. Uh-huh. So when he started sending things out, they sold right away. These stories he wrote in college, and they were the first things I think that he ever finished. Oh, yeah, I didn't have a long apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. I didn't have any apprenticeship. I wrote a few things that I didn't finish, 
then the first short story that I actually finished, I sold. Really? Yeah. And the second. And the second. And these were a college class. Yeah. Because I was having. Okay, we've had um, conversations here. You've had many conversations. We have a lot, lot of young writers here. Lily Yu is here, and and she won the undergraduate, you know, right. Adele Magazine Award. And they're all saying the same thing, which was especially back then. I would think it's unusual to have a college professor who let you write this stuff. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. So you must have had somebody pretty broad-minded. I had a fellow who wasn't even an American; he was German, hmm. and he said uh, he loved the. Uh, German science fiction in World War II. He read all the oh. uh, science fiction magazines and actually had American science fiction magazines sent over. Yeah, so he was uh, he was all for it. So he knew what you were doing. Oh, oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. Cool. <clears throat> and then you started. Well, let's, since we since we kind of have a chronology going on in the best of, and there are probably a lot of stories in there that people haven't read. We could either go through the whole thing, or no, I know what I wanted to ask you, because mm -hmm. I've got my own answer to this. <laughs> uh, we, uh, you know, Ursula Le Guin just did two volumes of her short stories, and the first volume was all stuff that she wanted people to read that basically her fans had frequently never heard of, a lot of oh, mainstream yeah. stories and that sort of thing. <clears throat> Looking, if you can remember all the contents of the best of Joe Haldeman, what are the stories that you don't think are well enough known that you really, really like? Oh, that's interesting. I, if you know, I don't have the contents in front of me. Uh, well, Jonathan probably has them. I do <laughs> indeed. Yes, actually. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, the book. See, the, uh, yeah. Lindsay and the Red City Blues is. Yeah, that one. Because that's not. <laughs> it was not written as a science fiction or right. fantasy story, and I gave it a little fantasy tweak at the end in order to get it published. But uh, it was just a slice of life uh -huh. observation of Marrakesh. When we were there, I was just so absolutely taken with the exoticness of the place. I had to write a story about it. In fact, I wrote mm. most of it in Marrakesh, didn't I? I think so. Yeah. What, <clears throat> Jonathan, what, what, Jonathan, Jonathan and I talked about this a lot while we were doing this. Yep. But, <clears throat> what's your secret favorite, Jonathan? <laughs> I don't think it's a secret favorite. I think it's probably the Hemingway hoax, which I think is a masterpiece of a story. I mean, I loved oh, I it the first time I read it. Yeah, I enjoyed writing that. Maybe I enjoyed it too much. <laughs> I don't have a critical uh, eye for it. Tell what Gardner did too. Yeah, Gardner. Uh, I uh, Gardner Dozois, the editor of, uh, at the time, it was Isaac Asimov's science fiction magazine. <clears throat> I sent it to Gardner. And I said, Gardner, you won't be able to fit this into the magazine. I just, I liked writing it so much, I had to show it to you. But unless you can split it, like, in two or three issues, you won't be able to do it. Mm -hmm. And he called me back. We mm -hmm. almost never worked by a phone. Mm -hmm. But he called me back and said, you know, I can fit it into the next issue if you can cut one-third of it. Oh. And I said, oh, shit, you know, I can't do that. How can you cut a third <laughs> of a tight masterpiece like this? <laughs> and he said, well, uh, you know... Can we do it over the phone? <laughs> You're looking at a three-hour, three-hour phone call. <clears throat> so I said, I can if you can, and we sat down with a case of beer and essentially <laughs> cut a third of the story line by line. <clears throat> and he's a great line editor, yeah. so that really uh, was quite an experience for me. I've heard that. Have you ever had anything like that before? No, nor since. <laughs> I can imagine collaborating with Gardner would be a trip. 
Uh, I'm one of the few people in his generation who never did collaborate with him. I guess that's true, yeah. Because you were part of that whole, was it the Milford crowd with Jack Dan and everybody else? And were they yeah. writing stories together? And Yeah, we, were, we had a lot of fun back in the 70s. <laughs> but yeah, that's early how, 80s, I yeah. guess. <clears throat> well, my secret favorite, since we're all throwing this, for White Hill. Oh, yeah. And I just, that's I think it's one of the most beautifully written stories in the field is... And I didn't even, I, mean, I, I got the Shakespeare thing. I, I didn't get the Mont Blanc pen thing until you told me about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and also the, uh, I got the idea of structuring a sonnet around, uh, structuring a novella around Shakespeare's uh -huh. sonnets before I started for White Hill. And I probably mm -hmm. have a little paragraph scribbled in my notes sometime mm -hmm. uh, in the year or two preceding its uh, writing. But yeah, that was... Uh, because the particular sonnet 14 is so tightly structured and mm. has such a narrative thrust to it, it was uh, like a gauntlet thrown. I had to write it. <laughs> I guess one thing I'm curious about is that probably the work obviously you're best known for is The Forever War, which gets mm. you know, characterized as military science fiction. And it certainly is to, to a point. But when... I was reading for the best of Joe Holden, and I felt that it almost, in a way, m you know, mischaracterizes you to place you in the military science fiction camp. It's really not what your work's primarily about, even though it's obviously there's a strong biographical experience that has colored all of your work. Do you feel being yeah. put there has led people to misread your work, misunderstand what you're doing? I have to say I've never thought of that. I basically don't give a fuck, so, you know, I mean, I just write the stuff, I don't have to interpret it. I think, though, uh, I think what happened is the term military science fiction sort of evolved long after the Forever War. Well, that's sure. true, yeah. And it, it, it became a kind of code word for things that look vaguely like Starship Troopers, but don't really disapprove of Starship Troopers as much as they ought to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And... And, and so, yeah, military SF. But uh, you and I had a conversation once. We were counting up stories, and I think Jonathan and I, we were talking about this too, that there are actually more stories and novels that deal with the arts than that deal with the military. Yeah, true. That's true. Uh, I mean, a lot of stuff about poetry, a lot of stuff about um, painting, painting, sculpting, cinema, sort of yeah. thing. And you're also a painter, of course. You're a pretty good yeah. watercolorist. Basically. A pretty, well, like little old ladies back then. <laughs> 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 that kind of watercolorist. <laughs> But the um, other stories, okay, we were going to go back and, and, and look at the early um, early stories since we got back to the Forever War now. Hero came about, when you'd written Hero after Warrior. Yeah. Right, and Warrior had just was out there. And my, one question about that, was that intended to be a young adult? Yes. Uh, yeah, in fact, the, uh, the contract was for a young okay. adult novel. All right. And a limited vocabulary yeah, on yeah. top of that. I had to stick really? to basic English. That is the 500 most common words in the American plus, vocabulary. Plus the military. Plus, plus military, a special language. Wow. And mm -hmm. that was, it was funny because I looked up the list, uh -huh. but I never consulted it because it's pretty obvious you got the drift of it. By well, the yeah. Way. Sure. And uh, I think that's a pretty interesting constraint to put on a first novel, no matter what the first novel is, uh, especially if the reader is expecting that kind of vocabulary. It sort of, it, it Hemingway-izes your work. <laughs> I was going to say, in its extreme form, it 
Dr. Suicide Situation. <laughs> he sat down with a, 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 a interesting a footnote to this thing, but I, it's, it's one of these trivial connections to the field. But, uh, Phyllis Wise Fraser, who became Phyllis Cerf, who was Ben and Cerf's wife, and who edited the great anthology, uh, Great Tales of Ter Terror and the Supernatural, Apparently, it was the same person who sat down with Theodore Seuss Geisel and made a list of the words he could use. Oh, wow, really? <laughs> and so that was a whole comp collaboration between Random House and him. Wow. Um, but, I mean, it's got to give you some kind of discipline. I mean, it's just wonder if you get into a habit like that, does that kind of stay in the back of your mind? Like, because <laughs> you've always had a very direct, clean prose Well, style. see, this is the point. I looked at the list, and it was very interesting, but I realized that I didn't even have to look at it again because... Since I was writing about ordinary fellows in a war zone, yeah. the, the, the book defined its own vocabulary. I didn't have to worry about it at all. And I guess I was just waiting for somebody at Holt Reinhardt Winston to come back and say, well, you know, that one's not in the list of 500 words. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of them was motherfucker. I don't think that's in there. <laughs> Probably is now. <laughs> now. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't get through one ghetto sentence without it. <laughs> but yeah, it makes sense because the, the guys you're writing about would be the guys who'd have that vocabulary to begin with. Yeah, yeah. Every other sentence begins with it or ends with it. So Hero, was that was, was, was that was going to be a novel from the beginning or did you just write? Uh, I, don't, I don't think it was going to be a novel as in, oh, I'm going to sit down and write this novel of which the first part will become a novelette that I can sell to uh, analog. I think I just wrote it. Uh, I remember, yeah, I, I started it at uh, in 1970 at the Milford, uh -huh. uh, where I was had been talking to Ben Bova. And, yeah, I think he said that I ought to write a science fiction war story. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it was in my mind anyhow. And so I wrote that uh, sort of as the first chapter of my big novel about... Uh, which, which became the Forever War, and I sent it to uh, Ben, I guess. No, no I sent it to John Campbell. So it's John Campbell? Yeah, John yes. Campbell. Oh, he wrote a four-page oh, dismissal man. of it. Oh, that's good. <laughs> oh, it was great. He says, uh, women on the battlefield with men, you must be insane. <laughs> <laughs> and he went on and on, literally four pages of raving and wow. ranting. <laughs> and he said, this is a man I had great respect for, mm -hmm. uh, but I sort of was not at all surprised at the response. And basically, I was still scratching my head over that when he died. And so Ben Bova took over uh, Analog and said, could I take a look at that story? <laughs> <laughs> and then they lost subscribers. Oh, oh they, they lost Oh, they lost 600 subscribers no, who bad, who, who wrote. 600, but they lost Wasn't it 600? I, I don't remember the number. I, don't I thought it was 617. Because of the women in combat issue? No, because, the of, because of the language oh. and, and other stuff in it. That was an adult story. And Analog didn't use dirty words. Oh, Ben made him change some of the words. Oh, yeah, yeah. I had uh, to change dirty words, but... fuck to hump, for instance. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Mother Humper got in there. <laughs> I wish I, I should have thought of that. Yeah. Well, that, and that's before all the uh, all, all the, the, the gay stuff coming in later. Right. The, the, yeah. yeah. That must and have actually, been... that was what cost them the subscribers. I, yeah. I really that yeah. was not in Hero. That was in. Uh, that was in the last, the last, late, last part right, of the exactly. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, actually, the third. The third next to the last, yeah. But, but, that, but that third piece, they were all in, in analog, right? Yeah. Okay. Right. yeah. And the third one, 
which you know today would get you qualified for a tip tree award. <laughs> it must have been just outrageous to some heart. Oh yes, indeed. Oh man. But you know Ben was a good guy, and he He's let me go guy. ahead with it. Mm -hmm. Well, did you personally get weird letters from? No, fans no nothing. Yeah, I don't remember getting anything from. Mm -hmm. No, never got anything. Yeah. Hmm. We got a we got a few letters from for about Hero, but you know most of what I got for all the Forever War was letters from soldiers and people soldiers, who had been yeah. soldiers. Yeah. And still does. He still yeah. gets letters every, almost every day, yeah. and emails from people, from kids in Afghanistan. I was going to say, if, yeah. if people in Afghanistan, soldiers in Afghanistan and Iraq, still yeah. sort of resonate with that book. Oh yeah, they say oh. you could have written this yesterday. In fact, this happened to me yesterday. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, are you surprised that it still resonates as much as it does forty years after you wrote it? Sadly, I am not, because I think it resonates with people whose experience was. World War One or Crimea or whatever, mm. you know, some parts just refuse to change. There was a, a HBO series here in the States, which I don't think you would have gotten, Jonathan, of Parade's End with Ford Maddox Ford novels. Oh, yeah. And they still pretty much resonate, too. I mean, yeah. Yeah. No idea. Yeah. Wow. We had hoped that would die out, but it will no. not. It will not. No. He's an interesting fellow, you know. He was... Ford Maddox Hifner. Yes. Mm -hmm. He thought Ford Maddox Ford was more like a novelist name. <laughs> I've heard that the uh, World War One <coughs> Hufner was just not a good idea to go around. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But then, you know, okay, before we get to uh, other things, since we're kind of in this area, um, and, and since you've got a new novel coming out kind of in this area, there was Tool of the Trade, which was kind of like your... I don't know, tough guy spy novel. Yeah. Uh, at a, in a way, it seemed like a Cold War novel, but it really wasn't. Yeah, I don't know what came over me. I, <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to write a, no, a, a story that was set in a particular place. And this was a demonstration for my students at MIT. Oh. And this was the bar that was closest to MIT at the time. And so everybody knew about it and could oh. hang out there. Uh, and the Green Street Grill. Yeah. And so I just set a uh, the beginning of a story in that uh, environment and basically kept writing it after I taught the class. Hmm. And I didn't know. I was waiting for science fiction to come in, and really it never did. Watch. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, there was there was uh, that kind of uh, uh, detail science fiction. Then. Well, it's like your Marrakesh story and something, a, a theory which Jonathan and I have evolved completely on this podcast are trapdoor science fiction stories. You just, <laughs> you write a Main Street story and then put something in it that says, oh, yeah. that, that's science fiction. That makes, <laughs> yeah, and somebody walks across the room and goes, ah! <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, of course, we were looking at a lot of material. I... Jonathan, did we come across any stories that were just mainstream stories? I don't think no. we did. Oh, I don't think we did. No, I'm basically a science fiction type person. Mm -hmm. And that's what I write, so. No impulse to write, I mean, other than Warrior, no impulse to write straight mainstream novel? 1968. Well, 1968, yeah. yeah. Uh, which was really, that was like the grown-up version of Warrior, I guess. Yeah, really, yeah. In essence, I suppose that's... Uh, that's exactly what it is. And I guess I wanted to, after Iowa, yeah. I wanted to write a straight literary novel. 
And that was the one thing that has happened to me that is a novelistic kind of experience, or so I felt at that time. Mm -hmm. uh, I should have gone like everybody else and written about graduate school on adultery. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's, there's some graduate school in there. Yeah, a little, little bit. bit. <laughs> a little bit but, uh, that was the other kind of interesting influence that, and we're, I, we're, I know we keep coming back to this war stuff, but because uh, I know Peter Straub loved that novel. Uh, yeah, and, and talked about it, and then, and I don't think he'd mind us saying this because, if he does, he can come on the podcast and refute it. But he was writing, he was writing a couple of Vietnam novels, Coco and the Throat, which he yeah. credits you with every everything that sounded realistic. <laughs> long yeah. Oh yeah, we spent a lot of midnight oil yeah, on that. Right. Yeah. So, and then we've got Forever Peace and Forever. And, well, let's, let me let, let me ask you what. No, I'm going to go back and. Okay, what's your favorite novel? And you can't say Forever War. Oh, I'm partial to Camouflage, I think. Really? Uh-huh. Yeah, I love the Shape Changers. His first story had the Shape Changer in it, and I just <laughs> thought that was the coolest idea. I don't think I, I may not have, was not well read in science fiction at age 18 and 19. And, um... Uh, I just thought that was the coolest idea, and in Camouflage, he's got this incredible ch shape changer mm -hmm. that I just love. I wonder where that comes from. I suspect, just off the top of my head, it comes from Robert Silverberg. Really? I was reading so much Silverberg, and I know he had a couple of novelettes in FNSF that were mm -hmm. about shape changers around that time. Mm -hmm. so, you know, it was in the environment, so that's why. There was also, during that period, you were writing a lot of sort of well, let's say autobiographical settings. Mm -hmm. I mean, your Alaska novel, your Florida novel, uh, yeah. what else? So, and, and that's what was interesting to me because uh, I, what I loved is that whole, whole kind of historical uh, Alaska bit because I thought this is something you must have picked up from living there, but not direct experience, obviously. Right, yeah. Uh, but there was still that... You, you know, know what it might be? I never thought about mm -hmm. this, but off the top of my head... It's not so much from my living there, but the fact of having lived there made me read a lot about the times in Alaska mm. before I was there. I guess that's, there, there was a kind of, it's a short novel, but with an epic sweep to it in yeah. a way. And, yeah. Uh, that background. I should ask. Oh, are you talking about Guardian? Oh, no, I was, I was, I was, yeah, I was talking about Guardian. Yeah. About Camouflage yeah. and the, oh, what's the, okay, I'm blanking on the title. Of what? Uh, the, the, the comp, the comp. The, the Florida novel, the, the Gainesville novel. Oh, the, the coming. The coming. The coming. Is, Why do I do all yeah. these one-word titles? Because your editor told you to do one-word yeah. titles. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, back Which then. Which you did. Yeah. And, and well, which one was, okay, Camouflage was the Raven, or Listen to the Raven, wasn't no. it? No. No, it's Guardian. That's Guardian. See, yeah. this, these one-word titles confuse me. Yeah, that's yeah. right. <laughs> it's because you're up too early in the morning, Gary. That's okay, that's part of it, too. I'm easily confused at this hour. Camouflage is the alien that lands way right. ago and comes up right. through the ocean. And, right. Oh, he's creepy and wonderful. Yeah. <laughs> but I wish, I wish I had been allowed to keep the title Listen to the Raven. I love that title. For Guardian, yeah. 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 <clears throat> I like that, too. They said it sounded too much like a fantasy novel. Yeah. Well, maybe so. Today, I don't think that's a considerable disadvantage at all. No, yeah, well... Right. Mr. Science Fiction over here. Yeah, well, people buy the novel and say, I want my money back. There's no hard science in this at all. <laughs> I have threatened to write Joe's autobiography with passages from his novels. 
because oh. I know what's true and what isn't, what comes from his own life and what doesn't. Someday I may make that a project. Ah, uh, grasshopper, some of the parts that are most true are not fact. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was going to say, actually, Gay, sort of bouncing off that, what strikes me looking at Joe's bibliography and what we hear is that as much as anybody I can think of, the, the work seems to reflect your your traveling life more yeah. than anything else I can see. I mean, from what I can tell, and I don't know either of you that really well, you're constantly traveling around the world and have been for the last 40 years, and that directly informs and drives the work that comes out. So there must be a real autobiography to it all for you both. Well, there's an impulse uh, that's strictly financial. That is to say, I can deduct all the travel expenses so long as I use those locations in a story. <laughs> Although you don't, <laughs> Rogers Elasney told me once he deducted a whole trip to Europe with one sentence in a short story. <laughs> this reminded me of the time I was in Constantinople. <laughs> was, uh, yeah, I remember Larry Niven said that once because he, he did stuff just so he could deduct it. Yeah. <laughs> you ought to do stuff because you enjoy it, but he just, once you realize that basically if you're a writer, your life is deductible. Yeah, right. I'll just do stuff that you, he was not an adventurous, well, he's not a kind of adventurous kind of right, guy yeah. at all. Um, yeah. On the other hand, whilst every professional writer has to get paid, these books don't read like they were written for money. They read like no. they were written because they're books you wanted to write. Yeah. Yeah, well, that seems to be true for most of them. I think the other thing that's fascinating, because you were talking about sending a story to John W. Campbell, and I mean, we've known each other a long time, and you, well, first time we met here, mm -hmm. somebody came up to you and said, uh, or introduced you to somebody as, this is Joe Haldeman, the legend, and, <laughs> and you said, no, I'm a rumor. <laughs> <laughs> and now you're really a legend. I mean, you've got the grandmaster, yeah. and, and, and you're, you're one of the connections to that Campbell world. Oddly you know? enough, yeah. God, that makes me old. Well, yeah. <laughs> but but at that time, what you're talking about is looking too much like a fan. At that time, science fiction was was in the ascendant to some extent, and mm -hmm. there was you know there were bestsellers. There were things like The Moat in God's Eye and and Late Heinlein writing, making the New York Times bestseller list, and uh, and Asimov, and the field seems to be wiser but smaller now. Yeah, well, quite different. The field itself is socially different, financially different. Mm -hmm. yeah, I, I just flashed on one evening uh, in New York about 1970. Mm -hmm. We went to some big science fiction do, and uh, like I guess it's the Nebulas. Uh -huh. And seated at our table was Edmund Hamilton and Jack Williamson. And, wow. and another really old guy, uh, <laughs> Homer Young Frank, 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 Frank Bell. Frank Wow. Long, yeah. Okay. And I was just, I was just a kid, you know. I had like two stories published, and here I'm surrounded by these legendary giants. <laughs> what can I say that won't be stupid? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I guess you walked into an era. I mean, what I remember when I first encountered science fiction, uh, I guess when I encountered the field was in the early, I mean, I was reading it much earlier, but from the, the early 1980s. And it was, there was a point where suddenly, I think Sturgeon passed away and Holt and Heinlein passed away. And somebody said at that point, it was the first time that a significant number of the, the first generation of science fiction passed away. 
And so for yeah. you entering the field in the late 60s, early 70s, you must have been regularly walking amongst giants, really. I was, you know, and and Gay and I were fans before I was published. So we had met these people socially before I had any actual professional connection to the field, which was kind of strange. I don't, you know, you can't, you couldn't be a fan of modern poetry, say, and just run into T.S. Eliot at a con. <laughs> <laughs> Standing in the long lines for John Ashbery. Um, the... Uh, Yes. Did any of them become kind of a mentor? Is somebody you think? Ben Boba. Ben Boba. Yeah. Okay. As unlike as our literary style yeah. are, you know, he uh, he noticed that himself. But I liked him very much, and he saw a, a lot of talent in me before anybody else oh. recognized it. And he introduced you to your first editor. Editor. Yeah, my first yeah. book editor. Uh huh. He helped to sell the Forever War to Tom Dunn at uh, yeah. St. Martin's Press. Everybody else had seen it and rejected. Yeah, 19 rejections. 19 rejections yeah. on the Forever yeah. War? But wow. But published the first mm -hmm. two or three pieces at that time in analog. Did the book get yeah, changed much during the, 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 you know, the path of all those rejections, or did, did you hold true to the original edition, you know, uh, you know, manuscript of the book? Oh, yeah, I didn't, uh, I didn't change anything. Uh, I, yeah, it's funny when we got the little card with the names of these nineteen editors who uh -huh. had rejected it. I hadn't changed a line of the story. Yeah. At that time, mm. and I still didn't. I, uh, when the book was presented finally as the novel, I guess there was one section that I withdrew. Yeah, I with, no, no. There's a section I withdrew from the sequence that was being published in Analog. Uh huh. Yeah. Because Ben Bova did not like the. Uh, Kind depressing. of, yeah, it was depressing. It was nihilistic. Uh, so I just went through and put it back in, into the book. Oh. You told me Heinlein read that. <laughs> yeah. What did he say? He said he read it three times. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. Which is, you know, subtract two for being a kindly old man. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody told yeah. him who Joe was. He got up, he walked across the room, and introduced himself, and said how much he loved the book. Yeah, yeah, that was something. And Joe's feet went off the ground, and they didn't touch the ground again. Yeah. For about a month. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He called me. I was not there. This is the way I heard it. Yeah. I. He I, called I, me up, and he went, "Hi, Glenn." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'd kind of do that too, because you know. Well, theoretically, there are things in the book he might not like. He oh, said, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. He said that they didn't agree, right? What did he say to you? Yeah, he said, uh, well, he sent me a letter on the publication of the book. Uh -huh. And I don't think we had met, or just very briefly. And he said that uh, you and I disagree on very fundamental things, and that will always be true. Mm -hmm. But he loved the book. He's read it, read it three times, and... Uh, and uh, wouldn't change a line of it. So wow, there you okay. go. <laughs> oh, he was so positive. And, well, he's such a. Uh, well, he was very conscious of his position as a mentor. As a dean of so, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> and this was so. This would have been. This was, I guess. Seventy. Nineteen seventy. Well, okay. Seventy-one. Before he got. Seventy-five. Really oh, weird, 75. I guess. To be honest, <laughs> but, but. That was the year he was guest of honor at the Kansas City. Kansas City, okay, World, World Con. Con. Yeah. yeah. And we actually got to spend some some serious time with yeah. him along in those few cool. years there. That was good. That was the one where they lowered him from the ceiling, wasn't it? 
What? Was that the one where they lowered him from the ceiling or something? No, no, they didn't. <laughs> he did put a, a, there was a stripper in the masquerade and he put her bra on, on his shoulders like epaulets. And <laughs> yeah, Pesha yeah, von Sternberg. Mm. Pesha, yes. Yeah. We, we keep coming back to this. I mean, for 40 years, people keep coming back to the Forever War, but there are great stories about it, apart yeah. from that. <laughs> Patricia von Sternberg is one of those stories. <laughs> she came through science fiction like a comet. You know? <laughs> and then went on to something else. Yes, yeah, I don't stripping, know what's but, happened uh, to her. Yeah. So then we get to what you're working on now. Yeah. And, well, we've just had the Mars Trilogy complete. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and now you're back into spy territory, kind of. Work yeah. done for hire. Yeah, I, well, I finished that, just delivered it up, I guess, a month and a half uh -huh. ago. Yeah, Work Done for Hire was something that I really wanted to do because I've always loved spy novels. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I can't just sit down and write a spy novel. There's got to be a science fiction yeah, driving so. force and so forth. Well, this one is sort of near future. Not, me, near, near future. It's so near future that... Uh, it's hardly science fiction at all. I won't oh, say that. Sick. I won't say that. No, it's, it's, no, I, <laughs> let me say the it, science it, fiction it, elements are muted. <laughs> and it looks like a lot of fantasy elements are in there too, and there are probably some dragons. You just didn't write them. Yeah, but, right. but, but for fantasy readers, they're there in the background. That's right. Yes, you have to read it upside down. Okay, but they're exactly there. Right. <laughs> yeah. But do, do you ever want to just write a hard-boiled detective story? Uh, you know, I probably couldn't. Really? But have to have something else in it. I've tried other kinds of fiction. Basically, I am a science fiction writer. You know. But stylistically, you can do hard-boiled really well. Oh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> but uh, I don't know whether I could sustain it for a whole hmm. novel, especially the length novels are nowadays. I don't know how to write fast, and so, hmm. yeah. I might, I might yet write the definitive tough guy science fiction novel. That'd be fun. 1930s or 1940s, yeah. you know, fedoras and all. <laughs> <laughs> I've got a space fedora that allows you to be telepathic. <laughs> You're not too far off there, I think. Yeah. Uh, I dare you to write a story titled Space Fedora. Space Fedora. <laughs> well, I belonged to a fake baseball team once called the Fedoras. Okay. So, you know, like the Tampa Bay fedoras? No, or the, I've been trying to think of what the double-breasted double -breasted fedoras. The double-breasted fedoras. <laughs> <laughs> Rick Wilbur's uh, fantasy team. <laughs> Jonathan, you've got the table of contents. I do. In front of you. Well, what is there stuff? Go ahead. Well, okay, first I was going to say the one thing that comes up, and it echoes across to something else I'll talk about for a minute, is, I mean, I was saying that, that the work doesn't read like it was ever written for money, but there's a real response to limits that editors put on you in getting you to actually create the work. And then that, that seems to have been a creative benefit. I mean, you're talking about the 500 word uh, limit for the forever war. Then there's anniversary project, which is war, the next war, story. For in the book. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Warrior, sorry. Uh, but then there's um, anniversary project, which is in response to Harry Harrison's request for a story with its own sort of theme and frame. How how useful is it to have that kind of thing to bounce off? 
Oh, I don't mind it. I, I think it's just an extra constraint. You're always writing under constraints. And so somebody says you have to write a... I wrote a story that's exactly 1,000 words long. Yeah. Because the editor said he was going to put together an, an issue that had all 1,000 word stories. Unfortunately, the magazine sank before it. Oh, wait, yeah. that story appeared in a Jane Yolen anthology. That oh, that's right, it did. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's called uh, "If I Had the Wings." If I had the wings of an angel. Mm-hmm. And it's a piece, it's a it's a prequel to uh, Worlds. Yeah. Yeah, I wrote it on one sheet of paper, a big. Uh, 24 by 36 inch sheet oh, of paper. Cool. <laughs> and then he, he framed it and sold it. Yeah. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> I get the sense you like formal constraints because that yeah. shows up in your poetry. You, know, you like right. to write double sestinas and things. Yeah. Uh, wasn't, wasn't there a collection of poetry? I don't know if it's yours in an anthology called Thinking Inside the Box. Yeah, yeah. That, okay. But that was just all forms. All right. about, you, know, yeah. like you, you, you do sonnets, you do villanelles, you do sestinas. And in poetry, I can see the appeal of that, but I wonder if that carries over into fiction in a way. I don't. I don't tricentennial. Well, tricentennial. Yeah. Tell us about it. Okay, tricentennial was a. Uh, it was a gag story. Okay. Basically, because I'm sitting here. I was editor of Astronomy magazine, and I'm uh-huh. sitting in my my Warren of an office up in uh, uh, Milwaukee. Madison. Madison. Milwaukee. It looked like Milwaukee to me, but anyhow, <laughs> uh, the phone rang, and it's Ben uh-huh. Bova saying, uh, you know, July is going to be the 200th anniversary of America. And I said, yeah, cool. And he says, doesn't that mean something science fictional to you? And I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> so he says, I want to bring out a, an issue of Analog that is all stories about the 300th anniversary. Mm. And I said, cool. And he said, you write one for me and call it Tricentennial. And, uh, you know, could you send me an outline for it? And I said, sure, no problem. So I just sat there and I typed, 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 typed. And I, <laughs> I think I did him a, like a 2,000-word uh, outline for a 7,000-word story. <laughs> yeah, but Gay's got to tell me something about it. The cover. Yeah, but he, uh, he sent me a cover illustration. Wow. Uh, which is by a really good uh, artist, uh, Kelly Free. Kelly Free. But it, the, the art director had flipped it upside down. Uh-huh. So the big visual gag of the story was that here is North America on the, the globe of the Earth mm-hmm. and all these astronauts floating over and everything. So the art director flips it so you can't tell us North America down there. Mm-hmm. And so I've got this story that's supposed to, supposed to resonate with the anniversary of... Uh, the Fourth of July. He had and, to have the North American Nebula. Yeah, and the North American Nebula. Central to the story. Oh, okay. And they flipped it. So they flipped the North American Nebula and it just looks like a blob of gas. But anyhow, I wrote the story, of course, finished it before I ever saw the finished right. uh, cover. And the the main thing about the story uh, is totally lost because you don't have the cover. And I thought, oh, God, you know, this story is going to be such a loser. <laughs> I mean, it means so much to me because mm-hmm. I really tried to write a great story. And uh, then, to my surprise, it got the Nebula, the Hugo and the Nebula yeah. for the best short story of the year. Well, there you go. You know, who so, knows where stories come from. Or, or how people respond to them. Yeah, yeah right. Hmm. I wonder if that... 
happens to everybody. Where, because I've, I've talked to a number of people who a story was written almost as a throwaway, and it turns out to be you know, yeah. the most popular thing they've ever written. Or, yeah. And then you spend years on a novel that just tanks. Yeah. Right. And it's like, oh, it seems almost like a law of nature. So. Yeah. yeah, like my, well, like 1968 went absolutely nowhere. And I spent more time on that than any of my other novels. The thing about, is, is that pretty much everything's in print, but is that still in print? I think it's only a, as a specialty. Oh, okay. Uh, press. Yeah. Because yeah, well, it was... Well, there was an interesting thing. There was, I, that read science fictionally to me. Yeah. So it was oh, structured yeah. like a science fiction novel. It had points of view like a science fiction novel. It just didn't have any science fiction out. Right. <laughs> Except for one little tiny part of one chapter. Which, okay. Yeah. You know, it's sort of a dream sequence. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the main character is a science fiction fan. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, how much how much is that UK? I mean, <laughs> I'm not talking about I'm talking about the you know the home fires. Um, I keep saying home fires and. Can the Jane Wolf story? Oh, no. <laughs> stop yeah. that, Gary. He's never going to ride home fries. He's just never going to ride home <laughs> fries. You have to stop it. Okay. Because everybody, it turns out everybody at Tor pronounced that title, home fries. I know. <laughs> I, know. <laughs> I put it on the shelf and it looks like home fries. <laughs> home fries. <laughs> anyway, keep, the, keep the home fries burning. Keep the home fries burning. <laughs> but but in, in a way, that title would have worked for 1968. Yeah. Oh, right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess the thing that uh, struck me about it from a point of view, I think we talked about this at the time, is that you didn't know what was going on here. So so you're writing an alien point of view yeah. about a point of view of stuff going on in the United States while you're not even here. Yeah. Neither is your point of view character. So it has that alien kind of you know approach to things. Yeah. A little bit like Guardian, as a matter of fact. There's a... I wonder, it seems to me that that was uh, all done on purpose, that it was all planned out ahead of time. But I may be wrong now. You know, once once the novel's finished, it just uh, yeah. gets start working on the next one. And you don't have any problem, because I don't remember any time when you've had a fallow period where you just couldn't think of anything. No, no, I've got lots of stuff to do. You know, ideas are the easiest part, I think. If mm -hmm. you don't get the ideas, Naturally, then why are you a science fiction writer? <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> one thing. Oh, John. No, I was gonna say one thing. I've been vaguely curious about is how did you ever come to be writing Star Trek, Joe? Oh well, that was easy. <laughs> it's all death and taxes, basically. <laughs> uh, the guy who was writing the Star Trek things, Jim Blish, yeah. died. And I happened to be calling Fred Pohl, who was the editor for the series, like a day later or a week later. And so I, we were, we covered the one thing we had to talk about. And I said, well, you know, Fred, now that Jim's dead, who's writing Star Trek? And he said, you are, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> so we had banked out a, a deal. And I, they wanted me to write, I don't know how many, like 10 of them. I said, oh, no, no, look, I'll, I'll write two. And... Uh, so I did too. As long as we're on that, can you explain Atar the Merman? Atar the Merman. <laughs> that was a weird thing. We were uh, at a Milford uh -huh. uh, Science Fiction Writers Workshop, not in Milford, Pennsylvania, but up in Michigan someplace. And the phone rang, the pay phone rang, mm -hmm. and 
a guy walks in looking kind of stunned. He says, this is a phone call from New York from an editor who wants to talk to Joe Haldeman. And so I drift out of the room on a cloud of yeah, self-esteem. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it turns out this editor is a <laughs> kind of a fly-by-night uh, shady guy <laughs> who had procured a, a contract for uh, spy thrillers. Uh, and he's this, he's, he called himself a book producer, and he'd basically buy out a contract for a series uh-huh. and then try to find some poor schmuck to, to write them for far less than he got. You know? And so I was the poor schmuck in this case. And I have to say, it was fun. It was it was more fun than a barrel of monkeys, at least the first, the two I wrote. Really? You know? yeah. And then I thought, yeah, I don't have to do this again. I proved I can do it. But was the merman thing your idea or was that part of the package? That was what he wanted. He wanted a merman who could talk to the clams and the flounders and everything like that. And he said that, you know, he talks to clams because, you know, they see everything. They just sit around and said, you know, I can't go quite that far because clams basically don't have brains. And I can go along with porpoises and killer whales being characters in this story if you can give them t- telepathy so they can communicate. Yeah. But let's, let's not have flounders and sea snakes and things like that. He says, but, but, I said, no, no, they've got to have a brain. You know, like, like a scarecrow, they've got to have a brain. <laughs> and uh, so he reluctantly allowed me to do that. But, uh, you know, it was fun because he had no, absolutely no sense of literary value. He, had, he could tell a story. Sounds like he didn't have much sense of science either. Yeah, right, no, <laughs> nothing about science. He says, if you have to do it, okay. <laughs> you know? He didn't know about Attar. Yeah, Attar the merman. He said, I want a guy who can breathe underwater like a fish, you know, and, and he can talk to fishes and things like that. And I said, no, <laughs> one is cold-blooded, one's warm-blooded. You don't sit around and talk to cold-blooded things. <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, sure you could. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> and so he went around this and everything, and I made all kinds of strange inventions in biology and anatomy and so forth to allow this guy oh. to be underwater for long, long periods of time and do heroic things and mm-hmm. so forth. And even so, it's, you know, 90% fantasy and 10% science. But I had a lot of fun with him. And I, after two, I just ran out of the ability to write <laughs> totally <laughs> stupid <laughs> stuff. <laughs> that, was, that was under what? Robert Graham. Robert Graham. Yeah. yeah, they, he's, you know, he called me up. He said, we got a name for you. And I said, oh, what? He says, Robert Graham. I said, oh, a good Scott poet. Yeah, that's fine. And he says, oh, I don't know about Scott poets, but, I mean, you know, we thought that was a good name for you. <laughs> now he's in Florida. And, <laughs> and I assume long out of print now. <laughs> oh, yeah. Those yeah. things were never reprinted, were they? No. But they have to be a Oh, they were reprinted in uh, pocketbooks. Uh, yeah. Pocketbooks yeah. and then... Uh, yeah, There's some was, obscure little. There was oh, a British. Oh, British. Yeah. 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 No, no, Pan, no Pan was, I don't think that's right. I Pan think. was the British publisher. Maybe, yeah, one of them. Yeah. And that was it. Well, they still have to be among the most collectibles of all. <coughs> yeah. <laughs> really. Yeah. They pop up a lot in musical right. things. Well, I, I accumulated about 10 or 12 of them, and I'm waiting for the price to get up. <laughs> <laughs> Well, maybe people listening to this podcast who've never heard of Robert Graham or Attar the Merman. Yeah. 
Yeah. They have some great things in them. The, the killer whale's worth the price of the book, and I just yeah. love that killer whale. The, I, the, the books were basically comic. Well, I've got yeah. one of them, and I, to be honest, never read it. Oh, oh you, well, you told me not to. It's well done. It's not. There's nothing wrong with those books. Yeah, I wished it. I used to wish that everything that I did was serious, and so I didn't want people to read my non-serious work. And now I understand that. Some of my best work was just trivial. <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> what was the most fun to write? Hmm. Well, there are all kinds of fun, I should say. Not trying to be evasive, but mm -hmm. uh, some of the most fun things I've written have been the most obscure. Sure. I think a lot of writers would see this because mm -hmm. a lot of the work that goes into making a story presentable is cutting away the things that might be obscure to various kinds of readers. Mm -hmm. When you write straight from the heart, it's often uh, in a kind of code yeah. that uh, you then have to divest yourself of. Uh, I guess in terms of just actual fun writing, um, the Hemingway hoax. I was, I was, I was going to guess yeah. the Hemingway hoax. Yeah, Hemingway hoax. Because I kind of just sat down, you know, I rented a room mm -hmm. and uh, I just sat down with a stack of paper and a manual typewriter, and I gave myself three hours a day to work on it. And there was nothing to read in that room. There was, mm -hmm. I had uh, the outline, which was like 20 pages long. I had it thumbtacked all around the wall, and I had a book of Hemingway's complete short stories. An old time. typewriter. Pardon? And an old typewriter. Yeah, an old manual <laughs> typewriter from her mother. It was great. Her mother did. Uh, quadruple entry bookkeeping on a typewriter that had a platen 48 inches long mm. and that weighed about 90 pounds. Oh my God. So I had, I had that thing in this uh, little six by five foot broom closet uh, office <laughs> and writing that thing was such a feeling of power because it's like a machine gun. And bah, 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 <laughs> you know? uh, it was fun. I've got to say that was about as much fun as I ever had writing a book. I think it comes through. Yeah. Uh, I mean, partly you get to write about Hemingway. Yeah. yeah. You know, I've uh, I've probably told you this, but in preparation for that book, uh, I was teaching at MIT, uh -huh. and uh, Cambridge, Boston has the largest by far collection of Hemingway manuscripts and Hemingway uh, trivia and so forth at the University of Massachusetts, uh -huh. and the Hemingway sweet looks out over the ocean and it's just a great place to work so i was down in florida at the time but uh i flew up to boston and got a motel room and worked for about four days i mean while the, uh while the library was open and then yeah. at night i'd do more of it just did all kinds of typing 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 and uh when i came back to florida i had to finish another book or something and then when I had time, I rented this room and covered it with uh, all my Hemingway Anna. Yeah. How would you say that? Hemingway Anna. Hemingway. Anna, I guess. Hemingway Anna. Hemingway comma Anna. Yeah. <laughs> but then I just started yeah, writing and, you know, I didn't have to look up anything because it was all on my wall. Yeah. And uh, that was about as fun as it can get because it's not working. It's just saying, you know, just here is the blank piece of paper. Fill it up with words and go home. Mm. It was fun because I'd bicycle out to the little room. It was about 
it was really only about six, seven miles away. But I'd take a different route every day. And, yeah. You know, take as much as 20 miles. If I'm thinking, you know, it doesn't make any difference how far I go. And then I'd meet Gay downtown for lunch, and mm-hmm. we'd go do something else. Yeah, that was fun. That was a good, uh, that would have been a good schedule. You know, a different kind of writer might mm-hmm. have just adopted that and done it for the rest of his life. Uh, but I'm always changing. So you don't write the, I was going to say you don't write the same thing twice, but that's not what I meant. You don't write the same way exactly twice. Yeah, kind of. Not. I don't even think, plan it that way, but that's what happens. I think the way I'm writing now, I've done several books that way, or, where mm-hmm. I go sit in a cafe uh-huh. and I write longhand into bound hardback black books. Mm-hmm. And then in the afternoon, I type up the work that I'd written. Yeah, and that works. That's about as pleasant a way of getting the stuff done as I know. And uh, I have the same, I say I have nine places that I can go to write, but actually mm-hmm. it's about four or five that I uh, consciously don't go to the same place twice in a row. So I don't mm-hmm. want to be, I don't want people to say, he's writing a novel, he's a famous novelist and so forth. Oh, I yeah. got you. That makes sense. Yeah. Like yeah. And sometimes I could bicycle out 20 or 25 miles to uh, a different area. And you still go to the Hemingway Conference every year, right? Yeah, that's yeah. Exactly. We have dear friends there now. Oh, okay. Because so. yeah. that's, that's an interesting world. And I mean, there, there are science fiction writers that have deliberate connections with other writers. Benford connects to Faulkner, for example, yeah. and that sort of thing. But for most people who are not science fiction readers, they would think that Hemingway is the farthest thing you can get away from science fiction. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, uh, it could uh, be. As a matter of fact, when I, fin- I wrote my first book on science fiction a long time ago, and I spent two years reading nothing but contemporary science fiction, and I wanted to get away from it, and what I did was I went through all of Hemingway. Oh, yeah. Just, well, just, <laughs> that would do it. Courses or something. Yeah, he hated science fiction. He did, oh, he did. He had well, he only mentioned it once. Oh, really? But he said, that's disgusting. It's so lazy and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah, he was, he was a man of strong opinions. Finally. But everything to support his opinion. <laughs> <laughs> well, tell why we go to I mean, besides the fact that you love Hemingway. Oh, well, we made so many friends. The first, the first Hemingway conference we went to, mm-hmm. we were, it was a total coincidence. We happened to be in Key West and saw this bullet, uh, a blackboard that uh, Sloppy Joe's was having a, uh, a dinner for the Hemingway uh-huh. conference. And so we just walked up to get a meal and, and hear some people talk about Hemingway. And we sat down just by coincidence. We sat at the first table we, see, we saw, and it was on this open air uh, mm-hmm. restaurant uh, looking down on Duval Street. And the, the table filled up with all the famous Hemingway scholars of the day. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I was the only, we were the only non-scholarly people there. So I had read all their books. Mm-hmm. And so I was the audience for a change. <laughs> you know? and, so that, and then they found out I was an actual writer, which made me, you know, the bug under the microscope again. Yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> so that was fun. And they've been close friends ever since, all yeah, of them. all of them. It's fun. There are, people, there, there are people probably at this conference who would dream of a situation in which the writer is the fan of the scholars. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> it was bizarre, but wonderful. Yeah. Oh, and those Hemingway scholars can drink. Oh, man. 
we were still rolling around Key West at three in the morning. You know? <laughs> but the Hemingway Conference goes to a different part of the world every year. Yeah, but so someplace always associated with Hemingway. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, even vaguely. So we've been to Schrenz, Austria, which we never would have gotten oh, yeah. to. And, and we've seen the running of the bulls in Pamplona, and we've been to Madrid, and... Um, uh, never done it in Idaho, I think. No. Yes, I was, yeah. Oh, yeah, they did. did. Yeah, oh, that was a great Oh, yeah, we saw him. Yeah. We went to his house. And, and talked to people who knew him, these mm -hmm. old 90-year-old guys. Yeah. yeah, he was all right by cracking. You wouldn't know he was famous. <laughs> Fine guy. The women loved him out in Idaho because he taught them how to shoot. Yeah. Mm. The men would go out shooting and he would say, no, you come too. And they would say, oh, no. And he'd say, I'll show you how. And then he would let them get the first shot. And mm -hmm. he yeah. was very, very nice to the wives of his friends. And they just loved him. And, <laughs> we were talking to him. Uh, we got all these old octogenarians and nonagenarians. Non and one of them says, you know, Ernie, he gave me a copy of every one of his books and he signed them. <laughs> I wonder where they are now. Everybody's <laughs> <laughs> having a heart attack. <laughs> Good old Ernie. Yep. <laughs> he wouldn't let other people call him Ernie. Really? But those hunters, he said, no, oh, sure, why not? Huh. But the Hemingway people, it was always Papa. You know? Yeah. Even when he was like 35 years old, he was Papa. Mm. Ostensibly. You could call me uh, Uncle. <laughs> well, you get to call him Uncle Joe. Yeah, that's right. here with us. All my friends call him Uncle Joe as yeah. well. And gave Uncle Joe to everyone. Yeah. yeah it's a good thing Stalin's dead. Yeah. <laughs> mm. you I was going to say that ostensibly we're here to talk about this 500 page best of yes. that's coming out uh, in, a, in about a week or so. Uh, I've still not seen the actual final book. I'm holding an uh, arc of it at the moment. And one thing that did occur to me is to sort of say that when I look at, at, at your body of work, there, there's enough short fiction for another volume of the same size, certainly. I mean, if, if, certainly if you go between Out of Phase and, what is it, Island oh, of yeah. the Death Doctor, which is coming out later this year. Um, in fact, it's exactly, almost exactly 50-50, the short stories that are in your book and the ones that have not been published. Really? Yeah, well, I was telling somebody yesterday that, we should just bring out a volume of the ones that weren't selected, and that we could call it the worst of Joe Holt. Exactly. <laughs> It'd be the, surely be the or rest of the rest of the best of the rest of Joe. <laughs> but if we were to do the rest of, what would you leave out? Uh, you know, I haven't looked at them with that in mind. I, uh, I did, I did look over the list mm. and could see why immediately saw why about half of them were not selected. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But there were some that I was under, you know, almost good enough. Some I wish I could uh, run through the typewriter again. And, mm -hmm. Yeah. Some of them were written too hastily. Or And some of them were probably not good story ideas, but I just doggedly finished them because, after all, you've got to eat. Well, yeah. <laughs> and some of it must be that, you know, it, it's learning how to do it. And, you know, you would hope that the Joe Haldeman who wrote Out of Phase in 1969 was not as um, accomplished a writer as the writer who finished Island of the Death Doctor in 2013. Yeah, yeah. Certainly not as aware. Yeah. I, was, I didn't know much about literature or writing or anything when I started out. And I don't know whether 
I don't know whether my extensive education sense has made that much difference. Do you think that Iowa made a difference? Uh, it made a complex difference in our lives uh -huh. as to learning stuff. You know, I learned a few things that you can do in a sentence uh -huh. uh, from various teachers at the Iowa Writers Workshop, and some of them stay with me. Uh, you know, Stanley Elkin. Stanley Elkin is not too well known, but he's a very skillful People writer. People confuse him with Stanley Ellen, but it's not yeah. Stanley Ellen. Well, he hated science fiction, and he mm -hmm. forbade me to write any science fiction in the semester I had mm him -hmm. for workshop. That's when I did 1968. Really? Yeah. I started, I wrote about 40 pages of it there and trimmed it off to an ending for a novelette. And then, like, what, 12 years later, I wrote the book. And he says, uh, science fiction is refractive, necessarily refractive, and you don't need that restraint on your creativity. And I'm going, okay, now the last Stanley Elkin book <laughs> I read, some guy fucked a grizzly bear dancing in the moonlight. <laughs> and I don't know what you mean by refractive. But <laughs> Does that mean there were other professors who allowed you to write science fiction? Oh, books? some of them loved it. Vance Bergeli, who was really? my advisor, he says, oh man, go wild. Just uh, Why don't you improve science fiction? Because he, well, he liked to read science yeah, fiction right. himself. And he had been in a couple of galaxies at one mm. time. And he was also a veteran and he loved yeah. this Vietnam uh, stuff. Right. Yeah. Yeah, but his first novel had been a World War II novel. He's kind of getting rediscovered a bit these days. I hope so. Good. He's such a graceful writer. It's so good. Yeah. And The Forever War was Joe's master's thesis. Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. That's yeah, so he had read The master, the, uh, the Forever War. It was already out when it was time. Well, as far as I know, there are not a lot of science fiction writers who came out of the Iowa no, Writers' not Workshop. Many. And you may be yet. There's a woman. Oh. Uh, I should write down her oh, name uh, and look Ra up her Ra uh, Rachel Swirsky. Uh, Rachel? Oh, that's right. Yeah. Rachel Swirsky. She's terrific. And there's somebody out uh, whose name I, who just slipped my mind who is doing quite well now, who's a graduate, who's writing science fiction-y stuff for mainstream. And I can't, I'll, I'll, mm. I can't think of his name, sorry. Mm. Well, I think that's one of the things we started talking about, how just over the years in the field, but over the years at this conference, you find, we were talking last night with a group of people. Um, about how, still today, if you're writing, if, if you're writing pure science fiction, I mean, not fantasy, and, and it doesn't look too mainstream, and you go to a, you know, fern-drenched party in, in the Upper <laughs> West Side, you're not welcome there. No. But if you're a mainstream writer, or somebody a mainstreamish writer, if, if, if you're a Ben Lurie is here, for example, mm -hmm. and you come here, everybody just says, "Great, come along." Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so now I was talking. People I were talking to last night were essentially edge of mainstream writers mm -hmm. who came through Iowa experiences. And their first reaction was that this group of writers seems to be very supportive of one another. Everybody wants everybody else to succeed. Yeah. If you go to something like an AWP con. Oh, God. Well, <laughs> the Association of Writing Programs, I think. Yeah. Right. They all really want each other to fail. Yeah. Uh, there's, there's a <laughs> oh, it's called the Associated Writing Programs. Right, yeah. Okay. yeah. It's not that those people want you to fail, but there is a. There is not a, while you're in the same room. Not while you're in the same room. <laughs> but, but, but the point I'm making is that this, this, this sort of enlarged science fiction, fantasy, horror world, the kind of stuff that the International Conference on the Fantastic represents, is open in a way that more traditional literary gatherings are not. That's true. And it has always been so. Yeah. From the 1930s, 
Oh, yeah. the, uh, I mean, you go back to the very first, the Futurians, and, uh -huh. you know, in the very beginning, there was a lot of squabbling and a lot of compartmentalization in yeah. science fiction. But when we became coherent enough to be us against the world, we became very coherent. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, it's been that way since the 40s. I gather, and there were occasional stories uh, of, and I, I haven't met a few of these people, occasional mainstream writers who would join the group. Yeah. And the sometimes published a few stories. There was a story, and I only know that this is a more or less true story because Harlan told me, there was a story in the old New World writing about 1950 by a guy named Dave Ish, mm -hmm. and it was called The Fantasy People. And it's it's a mainstream short story about a science fiction convention in 1949. <laughs> oh, great. Uh, wow. Which, and the only reason I knew it was true was because Dave Ish was somebody who was a friend of Harlan's, and he was, he was, he wanted to be part of this world, but he didn't want to write yeah. Fantasy or science fiction? Everybody said, sure, go ahead. Well, Vonnegut wrote that wonderful story about stumbling into a Milford workshop. Oh, yeah. yeah. Was, it became part of... Uh, God bless you, Mr. Rose. God bless you, yeah. Right. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Well, I don't know. There's a lot of writers would not... They would rebel against the sort of... Uh, not conformity, but uh, the assumption of uh, equanimity among mm -hmm. writers. I mean, science fiction is unique in the kind of accepting uh, feeling that we have for other writers. I mean, okay, the very, uh -huh. there's always a fringe on the outside yeah. who's kind of actively against the other writers. I mean, <laughs> there's a <laughs> there's a thing in uh -huh. physics, if you will let me go caroming off the walls here, there's a thing in physics called the Alfvén layer, A-L-F-V-E-N. <coughs> And that's when two antagonistic substances, uh, like two uh, uh, gases or a gas and a, a plasma, uh -huh. come together. At the boundary where they touch, there's pure crackling energy, and nothing can get through from either side. And I, I, saw, I saw this uh, as an explanation for certain astronomical phenomena like uh -huh. the Crab Nebula. I thought, God, this sounds so much like literary <laughs> <laughs> literary gatherings. <laughs> I just see a bunch of Futurian type science fiction writers moving through an <laughs> MLA so convention. Crackling plasma field. Yeah. Oh, maybe that's... I, I thought you were going to go in the direction of maybe that's the mainstream versus science fiction. That there's <laughs> yeah. the, because there's a lot of energy that comes from being an outsider. Genre. That's true. That's true. And... Back in the 60s, and, back during, it seems to me, during science fiction's bestseller heyday, when you had Clark and Asimov and Heinlein and that sort of thing, that there was a lot of energy that came from the fact that most mainstream writers were never going to burn out in advance in their lives. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like science fiction was, I guess fantasy is that way today. Yeah. Oh. yeah. Well, it is, you know, when, I, when we were at, at Iowa, there was this sense that well, okay, he's going to get paid for it, but our our stuff will last. You know, we're going mm -hmm. to be part of the 20th century yeah. letters, and and it turns out that they aren't, and <laughs> I am. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Are we running out of time? We're we're about at the end of it. I was going to say that's almost a perfect sort of note to end on. Actually, I mean, there are other right. things we could touch on, but. Uh, Maybe we're best to leave them for for another time. Um, yes, because 
we, we could talk about how hard it is to write science fiction these days, whether you can actually teach writing or whether it's something that you merely help somebody with. I'm curious as well, just just briefly before we wind up maybe, I, one thing I'm curious about, because we both have both of you, Joe and Gay, there, whilst I know the writing is very much yours, Joe, is the career really a collaboration? Because that's what it looks like from outside. Oh, I think so, yeah. The, uh, well, it, You'd have to have two people with similar personalities to ours to try to generalize about it. Yeah. I think often the spouse is a, uh, a problem rather than a help. And you have to keep that in mind when you're thinking about a writer and a partner. Uh-huh. Uh, we've seen this happen where the, the partner actually tries to suck energy out of the writer or the artist. Really? And, uh, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> it can be a pretty <laughs> dismal scene. Well, well, we do okay. I mean. Well, Gay, you've got your own legendary reputation yes. in fandom. I mean, speaking of Uncle Joe, I don't know. Uh, don't, but you know, you've been sort. I've, I've, see, I've seen you marshal young people around conventions and make sure they felt at home and that sort of thing. So there's a, there's, and, and apart from, you know, your relationship with Joe, you have your own relationship with fandom, and you got the Big Heart Award. Yeah. From and that's <laughs> something. That's something. Yeah. yeah. I've handled the business for Joe. I've always felt like I stood between him and the world so uh -huh. that he could write. And so I answer the phone, I deal with as much of the correspondence as I feel people mm -hmm. will allow me. And uh, whenever there's travel, um, I take care of all of that. And then I love conventions, and I'm mm -hmm. more social than he is. No problem. So mm -hmm. uh, when a fan comes up and says nice things to him, I get the name of the fan, and you know, mm -hmm. try to remember who they are, and, which has gotten harder as I get older. Mm -hmm. But I enjoy doing that. We we try to help Rick Wilbur with his students for the Asimov the yeah. um, so that they get to know Joe. And I speak Spanish pretty well, so we've been invited sure. to Spain, and uh -huh. I. Friends who are Spanish science fiction writers that he couldn't talk to if I wasn't there. So, and I enjoy doing that. It's a lot of fun. At the conventions, I try to teach people how to behave. That's part. Of I was going to say, do you fend off stalkers? I have <laughs> fended off stalkers. Yes, I have. Oh my goodness! One day he came to the hotel room. I was in the room, and he and he came through the door and he went, "Oh no, uh, save me from this woman!" <laughs> <laughs> so she knocked on the door, and I went into full jealous wife mode in her face <laughs> because it was the only thing I could think of to get her to go away, and she did go away. Yeah. I scared her. Yep. <laughs> and you know, you guys know me. I mean, yeah, and well, yeah, yeah, yeah. We do not think of, of, of gay as scary. No, I do. <laughs> <laughs> you know me better. Oh yeah. Ways, but I, I don't do the writing, not, not mm. the writing. The writing is his. Yeah. Uh, the rest I try to do. Yeah. Okay. Well, on that note, thank you very much for joining us, Joe and Gay. It's been a great pleasure. I hope we get to talk again sometime soon. Uh, yes, it's an honor, an honor to be in a book that you have overseen and edited. Mm. And edited. Ridiculously kind. It was a joy and an honor. <laughs> I, I honestly say that. Have to say that it's sort of to to look at a book that I've had a chance to be involved with. This book is just in, an incredible thing. I think it's a spectacular book, actually, and I think the field's going to be very, very lucky and happy to have it. 
Um, and I'm glad that Bill Schaefer at Subterranean gave us all the chance to work together on it. Yeah. I agree, and it's when we first started talking about this, I was thought, how come this hasn't happened yet? I mean, it's yeah. just uh, I, but, yeah. But well, that's that, because you were then a rumor and now you're a legend. So <laughs> now that I'm a legend, they'll no, make a movie out of it. Exactly. <laughs> Science fiction collection never made into a movie. <laughs> totally incomprehensible. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Cloud Atlas was pretty close. <laughs> <laughs> well, until next time. All right. And I'll okay. talk to you again. Okay. And I'll talk to you again, Gary. I'm at, you know, uh, from wherever you will be when I talk to you next, whether it be Chicago or Chicago. Florida or someplace. Okay. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye. Good job.